Welcome to episode 25 of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes, a best-selling author, and a professor at the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Robbie, this week, after we summarize the events of the previous week, uh, we are breaking from our traditional format to deliver a unique episode of Coronavirus to Truth. Care to tell the listeners about today's show? Absolutely, Jeremy. This is our 25th episode, and our focus on the truth about this pandemic has earned us a loyal and engaged audience. Last week, a listener pointed out that for many people, the truth is more than just the scientific facts. According to Google Analytics, the majority of people who search for the truth about the coronavirus fear that the real truth about this pandemic is being hidden from the public and suppressed. They worry that there's a conspiracy to conceal the real truth, and they point to information that deviates from what public health experts are saying. For that reason, today's program is dedicated to addressing the most prevalent rumors, claims, and conspiracy theories about COVID-19, from miracle cures to media hoaxes, will include frequently cited examples of disinformation, pseudoscience, and false assertions from across the internet. Our intent isn't to discredit these claims or individuals, but to examine them from all sides. We'll look at both the scientific facts as well as the fears that stoke people's suspicion when it comes to this pandemic. We'll address all of these COVID-19 topics honestly and sympathetically, and we'll invite listeners who disagree with our facts to present their own. And we'll have additional scientific data upon which we can follow up if we missed anything in the information we provided. As always, our goal is to give listeners the background, the science, the data they need to keep them and their loved ones safe. Robbie, let's begin with a recap of the past week. Well, Jeremy, first, the bad news. The coronavirus infection is out of control with over 160,000 newly documented cases per day, more than 60,000 people hospitalized, and over 1,000 deaths daily. The total number of Americans who have died is now approaching a quarter of a million And once again, there's a shortage of protective equipment for doctors and nurses, something that's unimaginable, given that we've been at this for seven months and had seven months to prepare. And there does not seem to be any plans to pass a stimulus bill in Congress, at least until President Biden's inauguration. The good news is that the data released by Pfizer is very encouraging about a vaccine. Among the 40,000 study participants, 94 of them came down with COVID-19. And when they looked at these 94 individuals, 90% of them came from the group that had been given a placebo vaccine, and only 10% 
had received the actual vaccine. Now, 94 is a small number, but it's very much in the right direction when it's separated by 90 and 10. For listeners, I'll add a few caveats. However, the information we have came only from a press release. There's no details about the people's age or what happened to them following infection. Second, the overall infection rate in this study was only about a quarter of what we would have expected. And that leads to questions about what other factors may have been at play. And finally, although the company said there were no major side effects, more details will be needed before people will have confidence to be vaccinated. Similar to the issues we'll be discussing on the various myths, misinformation, conspiracy theories today, when it comes to the details, as much remains hidden as disclosed. Furthermore, we already know that this particular vaccine needs to be stored at minus 80 degrees, and people are required two shots to be protected. Both of these will be limiting factors in the manufacturing, distribution, and administration of the vaccine. But with the good and bad news behind us, let's get started on today's special show. What's the first coronavirus claim we should address? Uh, let's start in the beginning. Um, where did the virus come from? You know, one of the biggest and most widespread conspiracy theories um, involves COVID-19 being created in a Chinese lab and either accidentally escaping or even potentially released as a bioweapon. Uh, Robbie, what are the facts? Jeremy, the best guess is that this virus came out of a bat species found in nature and was first transmitted to humans through the Huan Seafood Wholesale Market in Wuhan via an intermediary animal found in nature. This is the same process that led to other coronaviruses, such as Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, being passed from bats to humans. Even this seemingly logical sequence remains uncertain, as very good scientific articles both from the highly respected Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine, did background tracing and were unable to connect approximately half of the cases to this market. This data led experts to hypothesize that the virus came into the market, not from it. And if the virus didn't originate in the market, as you point out, there may have been a more sinister beginning. This takes us to the Wuhan Institute of Virology that does research on coronaviruses in bats. How coincidental is it, the people who, are, who believe in a government-run conspiracy, at this laboratory doing research on coronavirus transmission from bats are working eight miles from the open-air market in Wuhan? They wonder if it wasn't more likely this particular coronavirus was being created in the laboratory, potentially as a bioweapon, or at least, as you say, a byproduct of a research project gone haywire, 
and that the virus went from the laboratory to the market, not from the market to the customers. The easier conspiracy to dismiss is that the coronavirus was developed and released for bioterrorism. I say that because viruses are much harder to develop than bacteria. And as such, it's an unlikely vehicle for a bioterrorist weapon. And to be effective, a biological organism has to be more lethal than this one. Moreover, given its transmissibility, it would pose danger inside China as well as in the rest of the world. It's not this virus could not have been part of research on bioterrorism, but something, an agent more potent, with an effective treatment available for the nation where it's developed, would make far more sense than the spread pattern we have seen and the relatively low lethality we have observed. And that leads to the second line of concern. Could this have been simply a laboratory error due to poor technique or some other safety breach? Here, there's some support for that hypothesis again. There are actually two labs in Wuhan doing this type of research, and one of them in particular has been cited for insufficient rigor when it comes to safety precautions. However, rather than being an indication that this was the origin, it actually provides potentially the opposite. Almost no coronaviruses are particularly dangerous, which is why technicians didn't follow the most rigorous protocols. After all, they'd be the ones most likely to be directly impacted by exposure. You can be sure if they were researching Ebola, no one would have been out of total protective gear. In addition, humans are immune to almost all bat coronaviruses. And this most likely explains the lack of caution. Finally, many scientists believe that if humans try to design a coronavirus, capable of killing hundreds of thousands of people while being asymptomatic in 40% of cases and easily spreading in a population, they would have found that task impossible. No other such infectious disease exists today, and virologists remain unclear how COVID-19 accomplishes the two tasks simultaneously, as such as virus is likely to have been a freak of nature, not a diabolical plot by humans. To that end, what scientists find when they analyze the genetic structure of this coronavirus and they compare it to other genetic structure of coronaviruses in bats is that rather than having a single large segment of material inserted into the RNA, which is what a scientist would do, there were lots of small mutations, something very hard for researchers to accomplish, but it's the way that evolution typically happens in nature. As such, we're left with the three possibilities. The first, the idea that the coronavirus was developed by Chinese researchers and released as a bioterrorist threat. This seems highly unlikely from both the scientific and bioterrorist perspective. The second is that this all happened through nature, by chance, with the Wuhan market and its abundant supply of wild animals as the major point of contact. And this remains the most likely explanation and the official one. And then finally, there is the possibility that somewhere in one of the two virology labs, close to the open-air market, a researcher working on the coronavirus made an error and released this particular one by chance that it was capable of infecting humans and it was then transmitted from one person to another 
And having made the mistake, it along with the Chinese government hid the data and tried to blame the plastics on nature. As those who believe in the conspiracy theory about the origin of the virus point out, piercing the veil of Chinese secrecy is impossible, as such we'll never know for sure exactly what happened. And at this point, except to point fingers, it makes little medical difference if it happened through unintended nature or unintended human error. We're stuck with it, and only humans, through social distancing and ultimately a safe vaccine, can control it. Let's move on to herd immunity. Uh, One of Trump's top medical advisors, a neurologist named Scott Atlas, urged the White House to embrace a controversial strategy to combat the pandemic. His suggestion would involve allowing the coronavirus to spread through most of America's healthier populations while taking steps to protect those in nursing homes. Uh, Supporters of this idea claim that a herd immunity strategy would protect the most vulnerable while minimizing the societal and economic harms of further COVID-19 lockdowns. However, critics of the strategy say it's too dangerous to knowingly expose people to the virus. Robbie, who's right according to the science? Jerry, let me begin by stating that rather than science driving the conversation on the coronavirus, unfortunately, it's been political and spokespersons from one point of view or the other. And this process has been bad for people's health. When it comes to herd immunity, there are gaps in the science. But more importantly, there are chasms in perspectives and differences in people's values. Eventually, we'll figure out the science, but the latter will never be resolved. So let's begin by explaining to the audience what herd immunity is. It's a topic we've covered in prior Coronavirus The Truth podcasts. Viruses can't survive outside of living organisms. They're dependent on more complex living things for survival. And when it comes to diseases that predominantly impact people, like COVID-19, the responsible agent for transmission of this coronavirus is humans. All viruses have a number called the R0 that's a measure of transmissibility. For this coronavirus, the R0 is three, meaning that under normal social circumstances, one person who's infected will give it to three others. Now, if one of those people who would have been infected already has antibodies and is immune, whether from the vaccine or prior illness, then only two people will become infected. And of course, if all three have immunity, then this individual won't spread it to anyone in the line of transmission will end. Herd immunity requires dropping the R0 below one, which would mean in the roughest of terms that two thirds of Americans or close to 200 million people would need to be protected. The term herd immunity has almost exclusively in the past been used to describe transmission in the context of a vaccine and how a vaccine diminishes the chances of one person spreading it to another. Here it's being used in the context of infection. As we said, the science has gaps. We don't know exactly how many people have been infected since so many of the cases are asymptomatic and testing is incomplete. We can't be sure how long the antibodies will last. And it's possible that other aspects of our immune system, particularly what's termed T cells, could be primed by prior infection to be ready to pump out an immune response, even if the person 
has hard to detect levels of antibodies. But if we have to guess based upon the data from both California and New York, the number of infected people in our nation today is probably in the 30 to 40 million people. That leaves a big gap for us to get to 200. Before understanding what her immunity from infection would entail, we need to add one more piece of science to the equation. Excluding young children under the age of 10, for whom the chances of dying is close to zero and the likelihood of giving the infection to someone else is also reduced. There's no proven correlation between the chances of transmitting COVID-19 and the likelihood of dying from it. And that is the basis for this idea that has generated such hostility. The concept would be to let young, healthy individuals become infected with the intent to let the transmission burn out and end before those who are most sick develop the disease. Intrinsic in the idea is that the harm inflicted on the younger individuals, the healthy individuals today, due to missing educational and vocational opportunities, is greater than the dangers of infection. Moreover, it is that by allowing them to become ill, you'll protect them in the future as well as the most vulnerable from getting infected. But that's where the logic breaks down, from my perspective, in three areas. First, these relatively healthy individuals often live with or interact with their parents, grandparents, teachers, and others who are vulnerable. Second, there's not enough young and healthy, given that half the population in the United States has at least one chronic disease. And finally, although the young have a reduced mortality, there's growing data that many do suffer long-term consequences of fatigue, mental difficulties, and even permanent heart and lung problems. As such, the risks are much higher than many people might assume. Fortunately, the most recent data on the vaccine, as we discussed at the start of the show, has tilted the scales to indicate that right now, maximizing protection for all, knowing that we're likely to have a vaccine sometime in the near future, would seem better than allowing 200 million people to become infected in order to create herd immunity. Prior to the recent announcement on the efficacy of the vaccines that today are in phase three testing, herd immunity through infection might have been the only way to end this pandemic. And if that was the case, segmenting the population by risk made great sense. Now it would seem better to protect everyone in the transition and encourage vaccination as the path to ending the current dangers. While campaigning, Trump claimed that doctors and hospitals have been inflating their COVID-19 patient counts in order to, quote, get more money. Medical professionals objected to the accusation. Robbie, this is a three-part question. First, is it true that physicians and hospitals get paid more for treating patients with coronavirus? Second, are doctors and hospital administrators taking advantage of a financial opportunity? And finally, are we overcounting our nation's COVID-19 cases? Jeremy, unlike the first two statements, for which the data is controversial and unclear, here the assertion of malfeasance on behalf of doctors and hospitals is false. The only accurate part of the allegation 
is that hospitals do get 20% more through the CARES Act package that was passed by Congress when patients insured by Medicare died from COVID-19 rather than coexisting chronic diseases. But this population accounts for less than half of the total number of inpatient deaths. Furthermore, doctors get paid the same, regardless of what is labeled as the primary cause of death, and hospitals aren't paid any added fees for patients under the age of 65 who are therefore not eligible for Medicare. In almost all circumstances, it is the physician who completes the death certificate paperwork and certifies the primary cause of death. Falsifying this information would be a federal crime with major penalties, including potentially going to jail. Actually, what's more likely is the opposite. Rather than doctors over-reporting deaths, they're more likely under-reporting it. Elderly people with heart or lung disease who die at home are more likely to have the cause of death attributed to their chronic disease rather than COVID-19. This probability is supported by data for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Between January of this year and early October, there have been almost 300,000 more deaths than would have been predicted based on past year's data. And at that point, only 216,000 deaths were attributed to COVID-19. Moreover, the group with the greatest unexpected mortality was Latino, the same population of people most at risk of dying from this transmissible infection, and a group unlikely to die from the associated chronic illnesses. If anything, I would say we're undercounting the cases, but one thing is for sure, Doctors are not overstating it in order to earn added income. Robbie, back in July, the Trump administration announced it was shifting control of the coronavirus hospital data from the CDC over to the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, Some health officials expressed concern that the move could result in the data being less transparent and even underreported, potentially allowing the government to manipulate the numbers. Robbie, has there been any evidence of foul play with the COVID-19 reporting? Jeremy, saying the Trump administration announced it was shifting control is only partially accurate. It posted the information on the Department of Health and Human Services website on July 10th in a relatively obscure place. For an announcement of this magnitude, you would have expected a major press conference. Overall, the language used to describe Shifting the data on hospitalized patients, available beds, and equipment like ventilators from the CDC to the HHS sounded like it wasn't the public's benefit, but the motivation has been questioned by many. Without doubt, the process by which the CDC collects data is outdated and was overly slow to match the pace of change needed in the face of the coronavirus pandemic. On the other side, many critics of the Trump administration worried that the data would be used for political purposes with less transparency than under the more independent CDC. And they pointed to efforts by the president to undermine many of the more restrictive recommendations from the CDC on social distancing and mask wearing. Proponents of the shift from the CDC to the HHS talked about how this approach would streamline the process, and they pointed to the problems 
One week lag in hospitals providing the data and only 85% of hospitals participating in the submission process itself. To answer your question, there's been no evidence of intentional data distortion by HHS or the administration after the shift. However, there's also been no improvement in data collection. And as a result, on August the 20th, the Department of Health and Human Services reversed the directive and once again instructed hospitals to send the information directly to the CDC. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Coordinator, said that the federal government and CDC were working together to build a new data system with regular accountability for monitoring treatment availability and protective equipment. During the month that the HHS was responsible for the data collection and distribution, the lag in timeliness, if anything, expanded. But once again, there's no evidence that in any way this was intentional. It's hard for me to believe that in 2020, in the United States, this type of crucial data on how many hospital beds we have, how many sick patients we have, how many ventilators we have is hand entered into an outdated computer system by hospital personnel. The biggest myth to me when it comes to this area is that our country is a world leader in readiness and ability to respond to a pandemic of this nature, particularly when we compare our performance to countries across Asia. Polls show that most Americans believe that wearing a mask helps protect them and others against the spread of COVID-19. One recent study concluded that a universal mask policy could potentially save 130,000 lives over the next five months. However, masks have their fair share of skeptics too. Once again, uh, Trump advisor Scott Atlas has taken a contrarian view, claiming on Twitter that masks don't work. That comment was later removed and Atlas himself walked back the tweet. Nevertheless, we've seen a lot of claims on social media that either masks don't work or that they could potentially uh, prove harmful. One thing I've heard going around recently is that the cloth masks, if not washed and reused frequently, could potentially give you a bacterial infection that even could potentially be worse than COVID-19. Robbie, what are the facts? In the battle against the coronavirus to date, masks are the most effective prevention we have. A new report for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said masks not only protect the general public from COVID-19, but they also protect the mask wearer. And this is a relatively newer finding. The CDC went on to conclude that adopting, and this is a quote, adopting universal masking policies can help avert future lockdowns, especially if combined with other non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as social distancing, hand hygiene, and adequate ventilation. It pointed out there have been seven studies confirming the benefit of masks, It cited a study from Goldman Sachs that estimated a 15% increase in adherence would result in a $1 trillion decrease in the negative impact on the United States' gross domestic product. If you think about it, this conclusion makes total sense that masks are effective. This virus spreads predominantly by respiratory droplets in the air. If a person wears a mask and coughs or sneeze, the droplets don't get out as easily. And if a person wears a mask and is breathing air in, 
the mask filters at least the largest of the droplets all the way down to 10 microns, according to the CDC brief. One reason why masks are so vital is that 40% of people with the virus are asymptomatic. As such, they're shedding large amounts of virus without being aware they are doing so. As a result, 50% of transmission, according to the CDC, comes from this population of patients, and why everyone, particularly those who feel well, need to don this protection, both for themselves and others. Overall, cloth masks with higher thread counts and multiple layers are best, with such masks filtering nearly 50% of fine particulate matter down to one micron. And although the data is not conclusive, there's evidence that your chances of becoming infected with COVID-19 and possibly even how sick you become correlate with the total viral load inhaled. And if that proves to be the case, it's another reason to wear masks. But as you point out, masks are pieces of clothing. And if they become contaminated, they can be sources of infection, which is why it's important to change masks on a pretty frequent basis and to wash the ones that are made of cloth. Robbie, it has been long reported that the United States accounts for about 20% of the deaths globally, despite a population that accounts uh, for only about 4% of the world's people. One common defense of the U.S. government's response to the virus has been something like this. The case counts and death totals in the United States are higher because other countries don't test as much and are willing to fudge the numbers. Is there any truth to these claims? Jeremy, the case counts and death tolls are different issues. As we've said multiple times in coronavirus, the truth, the total number of cases is different than the number of people who test positively. It's why people often talk about 10 million cases when in reality, the number is probably around 40 million. Think about it. If you did no testing, you could say there was no incidence of coronavirus in the population. And if you suddenly stop testing, you could say you had eradicated the disease, both of which, are co- of course, are absurd. The more you test, particularly among asymptomatic people, the more unexpected disease you'll find. In contrast, the total number of deaths, as well as the number of people hospitalized, is an actual number that reflects the actual incidence of the disease. To a small degree, it is possible with someone with, let's say, heart or lung disease who dies suddenly at home from COVID-19 and has never been tested, could be said not to die from the coronavirus. However, that's not the usual disease course. As such, the higher mortality in our nation is a reflection of our failure to follow best public health measures. At the same time, we should be weary that even in Europe that had dramatically decreased the number of people with the disease and significantly reduced the mortality rate, both hospitalizations and deaths are rising at least as fast as in the United States today. For that reason, the numbers you quote comparing the United States to other countries may not end up as skewed as they have been in the past. 
but most likely they will still remain negative when we compare the U.S. to the rest of the world. Finally, testing in Asia has been much higher than in the United States, and yet the reported incidence and mortality dramatically lower. We can be sure that if every person across the globe were tested, the United States would still be doing poorly compared to other nations. What's needed is to follow basic public health measures, the wearing of masks, social distancing, hand hygiene, and most importantly, avoiding super spreader events, indoor gathering of large number of people with poor ventilation. Although we've seen several promising developments in the race for a safe and effective vaccine, uh, we may still be many months away from a cure. In the meantime, there has been much argument and debate over other treatments available. Drugs like Regeneron, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir have drawn a lot of praise from President Trump, but not as much from the scientific community. Is it possible that the efficacy of these drugs has been underplayed by people who just didn't want to give the Trump administration a win? So far, the only drug to demonstrate a positive impact on survival in patients with COVID-19 has been an inexpensive steroid called dexamethasone. It was shown in very sick patients to decrease mortality by as much as a third. But as strange as it sounds, the low price may have been why it has not been as hyped by drug companies or even the media as the other alternatives that you mentioned. President Trump did encourage the use of a variety of drugs prior to scientific evidence of their efficacy. To date, none have been shown to save lives. The Food and Drug Administration had given emergency authorization for two malarial drugs, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, but revoked it when the data in randomized clinical trials failed to show that either prevented the disease or had a positive impact on the symptoms or clinical course. And the research showed the possibility of some serious side effects, particularly cardiac ones. When it comes to drugs like Rindisavir or Regeneron, the data for use is minimal, although the hype from the company is massive. Remdesivir was shown to shorten the hospital course for some patients, but in multiple studies, it failed to diminish the chances of people dying. Regeneron has been shown to lower viral loads, but once again, not to impact the likelihood of people dying from this coronavirus. Putting the pieces together, there's no evidence the efficacy of any of these drugs has been underplayed. Instead, there's a lot of evidence that the benefits have been overpromised compared to the clinical outcomes that have been achieved. To me, the biggest lesson is that in times of a pandemic, drug companies should be required to make available to government scientists the actual results of all trials as they are happening. So far, most of the data is completely unavailable, and what is provided is doled out through press releases, not scientific reports. That approach may be great for the company's stock price, but it's not the right answer for the health of the nation. As a physician, I find this completely unacceptable when hundreds of thousands of lives are at stake. One conspiracy theory I've heard recently is that Pfizer delayed release of the positive news about its vaccine until two days after the election to 
to harm the re-election chances of President Trump. I have no knowledge about the timing due to the black box approach all the drug companies have used. However, had all of the companies working in the vaccine area been required to update the public as soon as data was available, the timing might have been better for the president's re-election chances. As you and I both agree, science and politics match poorly, but both do better when there's transparency and required information release. Robbie, no one can deny that the coronavirus pandemic has been highly politicized since day one. That has led people on both sides of the political spectrum to suggest the worst about their opposition. For example, many people have said the virus is much worse than the federal government has let on. On the other hand, people have said that the virus isn't nearly as bad as scientists say and that under democratic leadership, COVID-19 will magically disappear. Still, it has been suggested that lockdowns in metro areas were a ploy to damage a strong economy under President Trump. Robbie, are all of these claims just the unfortunate reality of politics today? Jeremy, I believe that there's three factors at play. The first is that this is a new virus, and even seven months into the pandemic, much is unknown. There's a concept of confirmation bias in behavioral economics. This says that given a set of data, people with opposing views will see what they want to see in the data. They'll zoom in the, on the information that confirms their point of view and discounts whatever contradicts it. And we've seen this in the area of COVID-19, particularly when we have contradictory evidence coming out of the initial experiences. Second, there's some intentional distortion in a very conscious process done to support the political views of one side or the other. If you're running for re-election, your PR team will find the evidence that things are improving and discount anything to the contrary. If you're trying to unseat a president, your PR team will do exactly the opposite. In both cases, the process is similar to what people do to shift perception, but there's not a lot of harm created as a result. The final part is that there may have been decisions made when it comes to the physical and economic health of people made in the context of politics. And that to me is unacceptable. I don't believe these kinds of political decisions with negative health consequences were common, but I do worry that individuals got hurt as a result. Jeremy, you and I both believe that politics should have no place when it comes to the health and lives of people. Unfortunately, as this pandemic has shown, the two often mix, and when they do, it's like alcohol and driving. The consequences are lethal. When I put all the pieces together, my sense is that our nation has suffered greatly from the impact of politics on science and from false narratives. I don't believe the misinformation and false assertions are parts of broad conspiracy theories. 
although some participants in social media and in talk shows may have that intent. What I think is that the greatest distortions have happened in a political context, one that has intentionally distorted the facts by selectively choosing what to believe and communicate. And for that, the blame needs to be shared by everyone on both sides of the aisle and of all political persuasions. Overall, I wish there would be increased transparency of data and greater scientific impartiality when it comes to the cause of this pandemic, its treatment, and potential vaccines. But I worry. In fact, I predict that in the future, little will be different. The truth is that our nation has done a poor job when it comes to this coronavirus, and there's enough blame to go around without having to invoke a conspiracy ideology for the problem. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.